we want to continue in our series of, of what I've entitled House Hunters. Actually, House Hunter, because we're talking about the church God himself is looking for. And we've just been asking the question, what kind of church might God be looking for? I mean, all of us at some time, I suspect, in our life have been on the house hunting journey. You've looked maybe at your spouse or your thought to yourself and you've said, you know, I need to be in church. Now, maybe that was years ago. It may have been recently. And then all of a sudden, your mind starts processing what it is you think you would like to see or participate in by way of church life, and off you go and you begin hunting for your church. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are probably some gaps in that explanation. There are probably a little more to it than what I've said here, but for most people, that's kind of generally how it works. They awaken and they say, okay, I'm going to go participate in church. I'm going to go find my church. Maybe the kids need to be in church. I need to get back in church. I mean, I suppose some of you have even invited people to church on occasion, and you've looked at them, and they've looked at you and said, you know, you're probably right. I hadn't been to church in a long time. I used to go to this one, but I hadn't been going, and I need to get back to church. And all of that is good, but the question that arises is, what are you looking for, and are you looking for that which, which God calls a church? And I think in the day we're living in, especially in America, I believe that God himself is seeking out his church. Now, we all have opinions, don't we? We all have preferences. We all have ideas. We all have interpretations, emphases of what church should be like. Some of that, I think, has an appropriate place. Obviously, uh, churches are different. It's even, they're even different in the Bible. In fact, we may get to this. I may explore this a little bit more in the future. But, you know, the church of Jerusalem was totally different than the church at Antioch. And those were basically the first couple of churches that we see arise in the book of Acts. The church of Jerusalem had a very Jewish component to it. The believers there were practicing uh, going to temple still, and they would practice their old Judaism, while at the same time they were beginning to practice their new Christianity. And so they were in the temple as well as participating in church life. That's how it worked at Jerusalem for many, many years. When God birthed the church at Antioch, that was almost, almost exclusively a Gentile church. And Gentiles, <clears throat> most of us in this room, maybe all of us are Gentiles, and so we have no Jewish framework. And I'm not getting into whether or not you should have a little Jewish framework. None of us have it by culture. And so when Antioch came on the scene, all of a sudden it was this Gentile expression of worship that was totally different than what was happening at Jerusalem. And there was this sort of tension that existed between these, these two churches, these two expressions of God's, God's church in the earth, and Barnabas had to be sent to check it out. And if you remember the story in your Bible reading, Barnabas went down to see if this thing was valid or not, and so... He checks it out, he comes back to Jerusalem, and he tells the brethren, hey, what's going on there is of God, so we're not going to mess with it. But yet they were totally different cultures and expressions. I tell you that simply to set it up that there will always be this element of difference. Not, not every church will be exactly the same. I understand you can go to some denominational type churches, and if you went to one church, you've been to them all. 
It's just the face up front may change. But they even use the same lectionary, and so you'll be hearing the same sermon out of the lectionary that day. I, you know, that's how they do it. There may be some merit in that, and I'm not here to analyze that this morning. But most of the time, if you go across a city, a metropolitan area, you're going to find churches that look different in numerous ways, and yet they can still all be a valid Orthodox Christian church. While at the same time, in America, we're facing a moment where there are some differences that are significant, and they begin to tip us over into an unorthodox ability. And so, and so that's what we're beginning to explore. What is it that God says must, must happen? What is it that God says must take place in order for it to be a valid church? Now, I'd like to do a quick review. We've already had four lessons, and I know for some people, if you've been here for all four, you're saying, please, oh Lord, let him go fast. And I'm going to go fast, all right? So let's just treat this sort of as a moment of review to get our mind back in it. Remember I used the word what? The big word I used was ecclesiology. Remember that word? And that word means basically studying what the church practices and what the church looks like. Don't be afraid of that word. It's a very important word that we've lost. But in our last four lessons, remember I talked about that we've got a problem in America. I'm not going to go over all our challenges, but we've got some problems. And remember the passage on Hezekiah, who when he came into power had to open the door to the temple because the door had been shut, the lights had been turned out, and it took them months to clean out the debris that was in the temple in order to get it back to what God wanted it to be. And so I think in some ways that's what we need to do. We need to open up the door of the church and let's clean out the debris. And let's make sure the church is operating according to God's design. The second message we talked about, what is a church? You remember the Greek word for church was ekklesia. Remember that word? Ekklesia, a very important word, the called out ones. We spent a little time talking about all the things that word meant with regards to what is a church just on the basis of the word that Jesus used. This isn't our word. It wasn't made up along the way. Jesus used the word church. It's important. Then that third week, a hurricane. We talked about building a house on the rock and not the sand because it fit into what we all had faced. A church, a house for the storm, a house for a hurricane. What is a church built upon? And then... The last time we were together, we talked about our identity. What does it mean to be the church? Because we've all heard the phrase, you know, uh, don't just go to church, be the church. What does it mean to be the church? It has to deal with identity, and the American church is in an identity crisis. I'm not sure if the American church thinks it's a church or a Fortune 500 company. Are we a church? Or are we Walmart or a restaurant? So we have to understand our identity, all right? Now, out of that last time, I told you we have to parse who we are, which is our identity, from what we do, which is our mission. If you don't understand who you are, you'll never understand what it is you should be doing. Most of us jump immediately into what should we be doing. And so when it comes to church, we instantly go to do. What should we be doing? But you can't get there until we 
nail down identity, which is why we dealt with that last time. But this time I am going to deal a little bit with the mission because we need to understand what we are to do as a church. How many of you remember last time I spoke, I used a quotation from Shakespeare in Hamlet. Remember? Remember what that was? What was it? To be or not to be? That is the question. That really is the question. So I figured since as long as we're quoting ancient works, I'll go ahead and quote another one. Because only an ancient work kind of nerd like myself would do this. How many of you have ever heard, read, or maybe quoted from Alfred Lord Tennyson the poem he wrote entitled The Charge of the Light Brigade? You ever heard that? Probably back way back in high school. For some of us, back in the dinosaur days. When dinosaurs roamed the earth, Ed Harn, Wally Gabriel. When dinosaurs roamed the earth, we were in high school, in our English class, reading such things. The Charge of the Light Brigade was a poem that he wrote concerning the Crimean War, and it was a poem about a desperate charge of a group of soldiers that were basically charging into this situation that almost assured them of certain death. And in the poem, I won't read to you the whole poem, but you've heard it, I know most of you have heard it, where he writes, cannons to the left of me, cannons to the right of me, cannons in front of me. And then all of a sudden, he begins to say, theirs is not to make reply, theirs is not to reason why, theirs is but to do and die, into the valley of death rode the 600. We all probably have heard that quoted at some part point, not knowing where it came from. But Tennyson wrote it describing the life of a soldier in a desperate battle. Theirs isn't to ask questions. Theirs isn't to reason about it. There isn't to, to suddenly just, just stop and evaluate their circumstance to see if this is what they really want to do. Theirs is but to do and to die. It's also the life, I think, in some ways, of a Christian. We're called soldiers. Remember, we talked about the militancy. Part of our nature is militancy, is the body of Christ. And we're soldiers. And when it comes to our commander, who is the Lord, when he gives us a command, there may be environmental concerns that look to us like cannons. There's, there's problems in front of me, problems on each side of me. But I'm not here to reason why. I am simply here to obey. And if it costs me everything, I'm still to obey. Do you believe that? Because let me tell you, that's a part of the gospel. That really is a part of the gospel. Part of the gospel isn't negotiating out with God what it means to obey him. I'll obey you today, but let's negotiate this. No, we go forward despite our environment. And so with some, some solemnity, I guess I just decided to use another uh, poem, poem, hijacking another poem title and uh, simply say that today's message is to do and die. Not die necessarily, although there are people who will die for the sake of the gospel, but ours is to die to our own self-will. Ours is to die to our, own, to our own preconceptions. Ours is to die to our own, you know, to our own 
wants and desires when they come into conflict with what God says is his will. This is a part of a gospel. It's the foreign part of the gospel that we don't talk about much, and it probably is worthy of its own exploration. But I want to talk about that in relation to church life and what God's looking for in his local church. So let's read some passages out of the scripture and just sort of set this up. I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your technology, you're welcome to follow along your Bibles or just look here on the screen. This is the passage. It's interesting where this passage is slid in in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just let me talk just a little bit about this. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer is talking about apostasy from the faith. He's beginning to deal with, he dealt with it some in Hebrews chapter 6, but then he picks it up again in Hebrews chapter 10, and he begins to deal with apostasy from the faith. That there were believers, Christian believers in those days, who had been saved out of their Judaism, or completed, maybe that's a better way to put it, uh, from their Judaism, and now they were facing hardship, they were facing persecutions and challenges, and they were wanting to go back to their old ways. Some of them were wanting to give up the faith altogether, and some of them were wanting to go back to their Judaism. In other words, they didn't want to follow Jesus anymore. Jesus was getting tossed out. And so the Hebrew writer begins to say some really incredibly pointed, direct, and what we would consider in America pretty harsh things to say, because we would never say this in America, that if you, that if you turn around and go away, that there remains, it is impossible to renew you again into repentance and there remains no sacrifice for sin. I mean, basically what he's saying here is, if you apostatize from the faith, you're out, baby, you're gone. Now, this is New Testament writing. Now, we would never say that in America because in America we're predominantly teaching antinomianism, which means you can live any way you want and you can still be saved. We are functional universalists in America. I have yet to hear anybody preached into hell at a funeral. Doesn't matter how they lived. Nobody, no, we just don't do that anymore. And, and, and so now we're just functionally all universalists. And so we believe everybody makes it. Doesn't matter how they live, what they do, what they say. Doesn't matter anymore. If, they, if we can find a sliver of good, they made it. But the Hebrew writer, man, if you ever read Hebrews, it'll absolutely knock the dust off you. I mean, so listen, uh, this, is, this is the context to which Hebrews 10, because he says some challenging things prior to this, and he's going to say some challenging things after this, but right in the middle, this is what he slides in. So I'm going to read a few things. Listen to this. So he says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day, which is talking about the return of the Lord, approaching. Let's, let's go down to verse 35, because then he picks up in those ten verses that I'm not going to read to you, again, some of those challenging statements about apostasy and about persevering, and he picks it up in verse 35 by saying, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Interesting what the promise is connected to, is it not? Doing the will of God. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul, this is the Lord speaking, 
has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Can you say amen to that? That's not, everyone, everyone say right now, that's not me. That's not me. That's me. All right? That's not me. That's me. All right? Yours and my responsibility is not to question God, but yours and my responsibility is to just do it. Do it. Nike got it from the Bible. Just do it. But the question is, what is it that we're to be doing? What is it as the church that we are supposed to prioritize? And what are we supposed to do by way of activity? What is it that the Lord is asking us to do? You, you, you told us, Pastor, that it's important that we gather. Uh, believers must gather. We participate in a gathering. You told us a little bit as to our identity and nature. But now what do we do with all of this? Are we just to sit here in seats and listen to someone preach to us or teach to us? What is it that we're supposed to do? I'm going to get there. But before we get there, I'm going to talk about the issue of our priorities, our focus, and our balance. This is a very important setup before I get to the actual list of what it is the church needs to do. These three things, priority, focus, and balance, are important aspects of church life which need explanation before I bring to you what it is the Lord says is our mission. There's context to the mission. Now, the mission isn't going to be complex. You're going to see this is pretty simple stuff. But uh, in those four aspects, which I will share with you in just a moment, you've got to filter them through these three things. The mission of the church has to be filtered through these three areas, priority, focus, and mission. What, is, what does each of them mean? You knew I was going to define these things so you could know what it is. Let me go back real quick. Well, I'll give you priority. Priority means this. Priority is if nothing else can be done. Priority is if nothing else can be done, this must be done. That's priority. All right? If nothing else can be done, a priority is something that must be done. A priority in your life doesn't mean that you neglect everything else in life, right? But it means that if I have to make a choice, if there are choices to be made, or if I come to crossroads, I always go back to my priorities because my priorities mean that if nothing else can be done, this must be done. All right, so remember that word priority. On the screen is the second word, which is focus. Focus, uh, properly interpreted, means that there are seasons or there are moments that things need your attention. All right, there are always going to be moments in your life where you're going to have to focus on certain things because it needs your attention. Now, your priority, let's just say for an example, and we start giving you examples in all of this. Your priority, let's say, is your marriage. Let's say it's, we're just talking about relationship now. My priority in my house is my marriage. And if nothing else can be done, i got to keep that priority you know, in its right perspective. I need, I need to make sure I need, I'm working with it. I'm, I'm making sure that it's, it's healthy, it's good, it's all the things that it needs to be. But we also know that there will be seasons where certain things will need focus. For example, let's say, you know, maybe your job, maybe your, maybe your job, something's happening at your job, and they're, they're throwing things on you, and, you just, and you're going to... Now, 
you understand what your priorities are, but, but, it, but this is a seasonal thing. A seasonal thing where I've got to focus on something seasonally. But I still better have my priorities right. You understand your focus for a season can't necessarily become your priority. It's just your focus. But focus has its place. Even in church life, I'm going to give you a list of four things. Number one of which will be what I would prioritize as the first thing. But there might be times in church life where something happens, something occurs, and there has to be some focus. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't understand your priority, and it doesn't mean that you should neglect that priority, but it means that maybe for a short period of time, there has to be a focus. Now, if that short period of time turns into an inordinate period of time, then I will assure you it will begin to challenge your priority. And so you're going to have to make sure that your focus is don't all of a sudden trump what may be a priority. Now, I'm speaking very philosophical at the moment, but I'll make this real plain here in just, in just a moment. And then finally, there's the word balance. You have your priorities. There can be focuses. And then everything has to be in what we'll call balance. I'm going to give you a list here in just a moment. And this list may be listed one through four, but it doesn't mean that one, that you just, you know, you just focus on one to the neglect of the next three. It means that there has to be an appropriate balance, even as you understand there's a priority that takes place. Let's go back to the family real quick. My marriage is my priority. But how many of you know if you have children, they have to be in that mix as well? you got to pay your bills. You've got to do other things with regards to all of family life. And we, we use a word that is entitled balance. Now, balance in the best sense means this. My life, or even my church life, has a healthy sense of appropriate participation in those things God commands and life demands. That's what balance means. Balance means that as I look at life, God's commanding me to do things. Now, now, you know, I don't want to say this. God commands me to pray without ceasing. But if, but if I stay in my prayer closet 24-7, I can't go to work, can I? I can't make money. I can't, you know, pay my bills, supply for my family. So, so understand, while God commands, commands us to pray without ceasing... God also understands that life demands certain things that we have to participate in in order to make it all healthy and, and to make it all uh, appropriate in our, in our responsibility and in our, uh, and in our prioritization. Here's, here's the sad fact. This part of our life usually takes a way back seat to everything that we think life demands of us. There are times you need to look at life and say you take a back seat. There, there are times that happens. But balance means I've got to find that healthy, healthy spot. Now, I will tell you this. This word balance for years used to irritate me. Now, re the reason why balance irritated me is because there was a time when people used the term balance to camouflage their compromise or to camouflage their cooling. They weren't, they weren't as passionate as they may needed to have been concerning their faith or their disciplines. They'd say, I'm being balanced. I need, to, I need more balance in my life. <laughs> I can appreciate a healthy balance in everyone's life. 
But don't use a word, otherwise you're doing exactly what the secular left is doing by changing the meaning of words. Balance doesn't mean you get, it, it's not a compromise. I, I used to use this example. If I'm walking, and my wife's in children's church, she's heard me use this example before, so if you tattle on me, she'll, always, she'll say I've heard that story before. If you're walking down, we don't walk much down malls anymore, I guess an outside shopping area, and, and you're with your wife, and you're having a great day, guys, with your wife, and all of a sudden you go by one of those stores. Let's say you go by Victoria's Secret, or let's, let's say this. Let's say, let's say this really uh, attractive young thing starts walking this way towards you, and you're walking with your wife. But all of a sudden as she walks by, your eyes just follow that young thing. And she goes by. Well, what's your wife going to do? She's going to go, poof, she's going to hit you. She goes, what are you doing staring at that thing? What are you doing? And you look at her and say, sweetie, I'm being balanced. You'd, you'd, you'd balance them with a two-by-four up the side of their head, ladies, wouldn't you? That's exactly what you do, and they'd need one up the side of their head. That's not balance. That's not balance. No, no, no. That, that, now we're getting back to focus. <laughs> you focus on the one you with. So this is what I'm talking about. That's what we'll do in church, though. We're walking with Jesus, and some trinket goes by, and we'll start staring at the trinket that goes by, and then we'll want to follow the... And then we'll say, I'm being balanced. And Jesus needs a two-by-four and needs to hit us and say, that's, that's not balanced. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus is saying, I want your focus. All right? So you're following what I'm using these words because I'm going to give you a list. And what we want to do sometimes in this list is we want, we want to redefine terms or redefine concepts in order to make it fit to what we want and not necessarily what God is asking of us. And so here we go. I want to give you a list of what the church is to do and why we exist flows through the filter of these priorities, focus, and balance. Now, I want to tell you something. It's a hard juggling act at times uh, for a pastor, just like it's sometimes a hard juggling act in your house to make sure that my priorities remain straight, our priorities remain straight, to make sure that we're focusing on what we need to be focusing in on and making sure that we're producing health by making sure everything's balanced. But juggle we must. Even though it's a hard thing to do, it's an important thing to still do. And this mission list, I'm going to put in priority one through four, but it still flows with focus and balance. So let's talk about the purpose of the church's existence. All right, this is why do, now why, why do we exist? What is our purpose? And why are we here today? Why should we be gathering here today? The first priority, number one reason of why we exist, what, we're, what we are to do, and why we gather is this. This is number one, to revere the Lord. If you don't get anything else right, now I'm not saying the next three are somehow diminished. Are you hearing me? They're important. But I'm just saying if nothing else gets right, this has to get right. Number one is our priority, to revere the Lord. What does revere mean? It means we're to honor him. We gather to honor him. We gather to honor his command that we gather. 
We gather to worship Him. We gather to minister to the Lord. I want you to hear that. Maybe you could even write it down, that phrase. Minister to the Lord. Most of the time we'll use the phrase to minister to one another. But do you know that the Bible speaks about ministering to the Lord? This is our highest priority. You were saved and brought into his church for the number one reason to revere him, to honor him, to worship him. You were saved, the Bible says in Ephesians, to the praise of his glory. You were saved in order just for the sheer purposes of, of reverberating the glory of God. To honor the Lord. To glorify his name. Don't minimize the rest that I'm going to give to you, but this is number one. In John chapter 4, it's interesting, Jesus looked at the disciples and he said this, there's an hour coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Now, this is interesting. Do you see how they translated this here? This is a small s, right? Not a capital S. There's a reason for that. And truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. There's the capital S. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I want to dwell here for just a minute. What that means is this, that our number one priority when we gather together is that we come to worship him in spirit and truth. We come to worship. You, you may like hearing the sermon. You may like hearing the teaching. And I'm glad if, if, if you like it. I'm glad if it's helpful. I'm glad for all of those things and it has its place. But our number one reason for gathering is because we worship. We worship. In spirit, what he's talking about here when he says in spirit, he's talking about we worship the Lord out of a place inside of us that transcends our mind, our will, and our emotion. In other words, we don't come to worship because we feel like it. We don't worship him because it makes sense. We don't worship him because, uh, uh, what is it, mind, will, and emotion. We don't come and, and decide, well, I decided to today, but maybe next week I won't decide him. No, we, we come because our spirit has been united with his spirit, and we worship him in spirit when I feel like it and when I don't feel like it. And then we worship in spirit and in truth, which means this. We don't worship according to our own dictates. We worship according to God's word. Now hear me when I say this, and I just want to remind us, because we are of a full gospel DNA. Many of us would use the word charismatic, Pentecostal. I don't think anyone should ever feel leveraged or coerced or forced to have to worship God in a certain way. But when was the last time you yourself challenged yourself by the Spirit of God to step out and worship Him in a way the Bible commands us to? Well, I don't like lifting my hands. <laughs> you know what I want to say to you? So what? It doesn't bother you at a Clemson game to do this. Doesn't bother you when, the, when they score and everybody puts their arms up in the air on the football field. But we have people that say, I'm just not comfortable raising my hands. Well, what do you do with it when God says to lift your hands? The Bible says that we're to lift our hands. 
The Bible says when we lift our hands, we're literally blessing the Lord. How do you bless the Lord? If he says, I'm blessed when you lift your hands, and what do you do? You look at the Lord and say, well, just you can read my heart, Lord. I bless you. Do you think that flies? I don't know that it does. Now, no one's going to force you to do anything you don't want to do. But when was the last time you just challenged yourself that said, I'm a Christian, I walk according to God's word, the Lord asks of me certain things by which to worship, and maybe raising hands is one. I'm just asking, have you ever challenged yourself? I don't know who raises their hands and who doesn't. This is the fortunate thing about being on the front row. I am clueless as to what goes on behind me. None of you may have your hands up. All of you may have your hands up. I don't know. But I'm just telling you according to God's word, that's what we do. And I think, I think sometimes you ought to just challenge yourself to do like this. And once you get it to there, maybe you can get it to there. And then maybe, you know, I don't know. Have you ever said amen? Because, because the Bible says that the assembly is to say amen. Now, I know you do usually when I say, let, you know, what does the assembly say? Well, you all say amen, and you all will do that, and I appreciate that. But that's a part of it, to shout, to sing. You know, the very word hallelujah is, is a conjunction of words. Halal means literally to be, be clamorous, to be loud, almost to exercise a foolishness. Yah is the conjunction of Yahweh, and you put them together, and it actually means to give God just this energetic expression of praise. That's what it means to worship and to honor the Lord. That's what he's looking for. You say, well, that's just not me. It's not about you, remember? You say, I don't feel like it. It's not about your feeling. He's looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. We worship out of our spirit. I don't feel like it. I'm hurting today. You don't know my week that I've been through. You know, I'm, I'm just, that's not my personality type. And listen, I was there for years. I had to, nobody forced me, nobody leveraged me, and no one will force or leverage you. People just taught me, and I was a teachable teachable person and that's the key is are you teachable and I was a teachable person and I remember one time I was at a men's retreat and this is back in the late 80s and God that was back in the days we did those silly Jewish dances some of you may remember if you were around this stuff in the late 80s I'm glad that was a season that was just a season but I remember the Lord dealt with me because I said to myself, I, I, got, I was lifting my hands, I, you know, I was doing a lot of this, but I don't know that I was ever going to do that. And I remember the Holy Spirit dealt with me. And he said, listen, man, you, you cannot put parameters around what you will do or not do. This isn't about you. See, we think we get to bring the American Constitution into this, into this uh, sanctuary. We think, we think that constitutionally we get to worship as we please. No, you don't. You don't get to worship as you please. Now, it's true in America. As an American, you can worship rocks and trees. You can worship your, your, your bank account. You can worship whatever you want to worship. But if you declare yourself to be of Yahweh's, if you declare yourself to be Christian, then you've thrown out, I worship as I please. I worship how he pleases. So the church, when it gathers, it's not gathering in order to scratch your itch or accommodate Accommodate your reluctancies. We're not here just to accommodate everybody's potential, potential comfort factors. If we did that, if we had a really boisterous, loud, uh, exuberant praise session and somebody came in and they weren't saved, they'd think we were nuts. I don't know what they'd think because I ain't worshiping them. 
Worshiping Him. This is how He calls us to worship. I'm always amazed at how a Muslim can roll his carpet out in the middle of an airport and block all traffic going both ways through the terminal and kneel on that thing and point toward Mecca and lift his hands and go to his nose and he doesn't give a flip what people think in that airport because he's convinced that that's what Allah demands of him. But we won't come into the house of God knowing what Yahweh asks of us and we're just saying that ain't going to happen with me. Now, no one hear me again. I ain't going to force you. If you don't want to do it, honestly, I don't care. You do what you want to do. I've learned that. I've done this 35 years. I've learned this much. People are going to do what people do. Nothing I say is going to change them. Most people don't even hear me when I'm even teaching them. So you do what you want to do. No one will leverage you. No one will coerce you. No one will make you feel bad. But when was the last time the Holy Spirit just really challenged you in this area? When was the last time you looked at it and said, man, i got to open myself up. i got to get there somehow. When was the last time you took a step? When was the last time in this area? This is our number one priority is to worship the Lord. We've lost this because this is no longer the number one priority. The number one priority in in the American church is to provide an entertainment venue that people who aren't even born again will come in and like it and stay. And, and, And I'm not saying they don't need to stay and maybe they'll hear the gospel. But this isn't why we gather. We gather to worship him. And out of the worship of him, he descends because the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of Israel. He inhabits the praises of his people. And here's the good news. When he inhabits the worship of his name, those that come in that don't know him will suddenly sense him. And the conviction will either draw them to their knees or probably make them run out and say, that I don't know what I was feeling there, but I don't like that. Well, that was God. But you got to feel that in order to get converted. You can't have them avoid that, that somehow we sneak it in on them. Shh, we're going to sneak salvation in on them. Maybe they won't even know it. We worship the Lord. We worship the Lord. Number two, and we minister. That's how you minister to the Lord. Number two, We raise up the saints. We raise up the saints. Number one is we revere the Lord. This is our number one priority. Number two is we raise up the saints. We equip, we edify, we disciple, we teach, we minister now to the believer. This is number one and number two. Acts 2.42 says this, And they continued steadfastly when they gathered together in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So, This is what happens by way of raising up the saints. And the greatest challenge in the American church is to shift church back to passionately equipping for the mission from the current need to be simply entertained and appeased. It's great when you can laugh at church, and maybe church for you is fun. I think going to church is fun. But but our highest priority isn't to make church fun. It was meant to get you trained. It's just like going to boot camp. Maybe, maybe boot camp's fun. I don't know. I never went to a boot camp. My guess is it's not fun for those of you that are veterans. But it wasn't meant to be fun. It was get you trained. Why were you getting trained? Because we actually want you to win the war. I always chuckle because sometimes even parents will say, well, you know, my kids, they don't go to church because they don't think it's any fun. Well, church isn't fun. Church is, church is about training them. 
in order to live their faith. It's vital. So it's to minister to the saints. i got to keep going. I'm giving you our top four. Then we reconcile. Number three, finally, we get to. Now, here's the problem. In the American churches, we've, we've tried to make number three into number one. Now, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying that it's, it's not on the list. It's not our highest priority. And the reason it's not our highest priority is because we're not the one that's actually saving the sinner. The Lord, by his spirit, is saving those who are lost. Now, again, uh, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So in other words, we're being sent as we're being equipped, as we're being trained, as all these things are taking place, then we're being sent into the field in order to begin the harvest. More salvation should happen outside than inside. We have created, because of just our American culture, we've created this as the salvation station point, and it's really not. You should be the one who has the ability to be able to share your testimony, witness to people, and even if God was working on them, to look at them and say, would you like to open up your heart and receive the Lord? But, but again, that doesn't happen often because we're not trained to do it. Acts 1 says, John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when they came together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But what? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Look at that. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So as believers, we come together, as the Lord comes and endues us, we go forth and we become a part of that mission that takes place outside even of this gathering. Now, if people come and don't know the Lord, certainly we would hope that as they come to the gathering, that they would come and know the Lord. In fact, there are probably appropriate times to extend invitations. But, and you probably heard me share this story for years, years and years and years. I'd extend invitations and invitations, and, and people kind of like that. They like invitations, and I, I understand why. But you know what? After a while, I kept seeing the same ten people respond to the invitation. And I don't know whether they were getting lost in between Sundays or what was going on. But after a while, I began to understand that what we were what we were offering was not conversion and transformation, but it was catharsis, which was simply was, I'm going to walk forward, and maybe I'll cry, or maybe I won't. But it's, it's, it's cathartic. It, it, it becomes just sort of a, an, an, a moment where I can just sort of emotionally take a big, deep breath, and, and there was no transformation. And it's because, it's because of our ecclesiology. It's because we're convinced that if I, the pastor, can move someone's emotion that out of that movement of emotion, they'll be transformed. And that's not so. Your emotion will not transform you. The Holy Spirit will transform you. And that's why we must pray. See, that's why it's not just making the right key changes and singing the right songs. And I mean, there, there can be preferences, and I, I, I like a good song as much as anyone, and I want to be contemporary, and we will sing contemporary songs. But hear me when I say this, that it's, it's, the, it's the prayer, it's the intercession it's the believing God. It's him moving upon the hearts of people that draws the lost or the unsaved to the place of conversion. They are reached as a result of the gathering. All right? 
So we're not here to try to make church fun for them. We're here to try to point them to the living God. And then finally, and, and, and I believe this to be true, number four, our fourth priority is to reform the culture. Now, people will argue with me on this point, but I want to read to you a passage which has plagued me all my life, and it's this. Colossians 1, 16 through 18, it says, For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Okay, can we stop there and just simply say that means everything's his? Spiritual or natural? Both. Visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. And again, in that context, it means both earthly and heavenly. All things were created through him and what? Everything was created that you see around you was meant for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. In other words, if Jesus isn't being Lord of it, it will never function properly. Any of you watched the Kavanaugh hearings? It's dysfunctional, isn't it? Absolutely, we are living in the twilight zone. You know why? It's because Jesus is nowhere to be seen in this stuff. And if he's not in it, then it will not be upheld. I'm just telling you, that's why we need revival. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, all things, everyone say that, all things he may have what? All things. Listen to this. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. He didn't say all people, did he? Now, it includes that, but he said, reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. I think that is the greatest Reformation passage in the Bible because what it says is this. The church, as a militant force, is commissioned to go into every arena of life and cast darkness out, cast the devil out. And begin to see that area redeemed and conquered for the kingdom of God. Which means no matter where you work, no matter what your job is, no matter what your business is, no matter where you are at, no matter what's going on, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And as you step into that arena, you're not just in that arena to get your paycheck so that you can pay your bills and, and this is all valid. But it's not just for these purposes, but you are an ambassador of another kingdom and you're going into that realm in, in as much as you are able and to begin through Christ's name to conquer that thing for his cause and his name. We think, we think all of that is, is compartmentalized somewhere out of our realm of any influence. I don't care what you're doing. We are, we are moving in order to conquer in that arena. And that is the churches, the churches, really it's an honor for the church to do this. This is an honor. I believe the last, what Psalm 149 says, that when we bind the kings with fetters and chains, and when we chase the enemy, I believe it's Psalm 149 says, and this is an honor for his holy ones. This is an honor for the church. 
We have been honored by Christ himself to take his power and to step into the earth and to conquer those areas in his name. It may not be conquered in a day. It may not be in a week, a month, a year, a decade. It may not be in my lifetime, but it's an honor for me to be able to step into darkness and kick the enemy's tail and enforce the power of the cross. That's what the church is all about. That's what you do when we say the final amen. You walk out of here like we were just in a locker room at halftime and the coach just gave you this rousing pep talk because you looked at the scoreboard and it appears as if you're behind. But the coach just gave you this rousing pep talk at halftime and you're all in there and you're listening to this pep talk and he looks at you and he says, you went through two-a-days. You, you practiced in 100-degree heat. You laid it all out on the field. You gave your bodies up. Some of you have bruises. Some of you have bloody noses. Some of you are hurting at this very moment. But I'm telling you that you have the stuff to win this game. We need to rise up out of this locker room and go in because we have the honor to be on the field to see the victory. Amen. Amen. I worship God. That's the church. That's who we are. That's our nature. And I don't know how it's going to apply to everyone, but that's, that's the Holy Spirit's job in you. is for you to now say, okay, so how do, how do I go in and I conquer? How do I go in? Sure, it starts with your integrity. It starts with your character. It starts with your your own personal righteousness, your own standards. Sure, it starts there, but then it influences there. It's like Joseph of old when he goes through the prison. Uh, well, he goes through the pit in Potiphar's house and the prison, and then he finally gets into Potiphar's, or excuse me, a Pharaoh's house. And all of a sudden, he's influencing all of Egypt for, for the cause of the kingdom. We don't think that way anymore. And we've got to begin to think that way again. That's what we're to do. I'm just going to stop with that. I don't know that I can. I wasn't prepared for that little blast at the end there. But, but I think that's a good place to wrap. Stand with me, will you please?